Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. The Yield Disruptors, the biggest names in business, culture, and politics. Hear how successful influencers scored big and became the movers and shakers pushing everything forward. Gain from their insight and advice and avoid the setbacks that might keep you from achieving your true potential. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and leave a review if you enjoy the content. This is the Yield Disruptors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Yield Street's Disruptor Podcast. Here we sit down with industry leaders and disruptors to discuss how they have reimagined and changed their industries and leadership skills necessary to create new business opportunities. Today, I am delighted to have Adam White. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. Who is the CEO of uh, Front Office Sports, a multimedia brand built for modern sports consumer. I am really excited to talk to Adam because sports is near and dear to me, like uh, many of our listeners. So, Let's get into it. So, Adam, uh, let's talk uh, with, you know, some of your founder thoughts. What's the initial mission and how do you kind of stay true to that mission and, you know, give audience a a little perspective on your business? Yeah, totally. So the business started uh, eight years ago in kind of earnest, uh, knock on wood, but uh, eight years ago uh, and it was essentially at the time, really an informational interview platform. So I sat down with people who worked in sports and I said, hey, how can I find a way to make sure that by the time I graduate from college that I have a job in sports, right? That was the whole focus. I would sit down, have these types of conversations. And instead of telling people that, hey, I wanted to pick your brain, I said, hey, let me tell your story. It was a lot better. Everyone wants to talk about themselves, tell their stories, obviously. And so started off like that, uh, spent $40, bought a, uh, for a logo, bought a Wix website, built it everything on, on Wix, you know, back in the day. And it was funny. I like to joke with people that it was a black uh, website with white text. And so I was dark mode before dark mode was cool. This is in 2014. And so we had to start doing informational interviews at 110 of them in the first year. And it was, uh, it was pretty crazy and, you know, started to build the audience from there. And what I always like to joke about with our, uh, with our team and just anyone I kind of talk to is like building a media company with no audience, no experience, no money at the time and no followers is, is, is pretty crazy. I don't know even know how we're still here to this day besides, you know, just hard work and dedication to, to what we've been doing over the past eight years. But yeah, so for the first four years, it was really just a passion project. I was doing it while I was in school uh, at the University of Miami in Florida and essentially just doing it on the side, going to class, working in the bar slash restaurant that we had on campus, and then working on the business on, at nights and on weekends. And it was, it was great. And, you know, opened some doors and opportunities. And, you know, I graduated and basically I thought I had a job with a, a sports league and a slash organization didn't end up working out. And I said, well, look, I have this site. I might as well go all in. And, uh, you know, long story short, uh, about a year later, I met our, our first investor and uh, they invested in the business at the end of 2018. We hired our first full-time employee in 2019 and we're, you know, now at 35 full-time people and navigating the past four years has been a little bit crazy for most people, but specifically in media uh, yeah. and just in general. 
So uh, let's go back to the college days. I think those are really exciting, you know, because that's, you know, you're super passionate about a cause that you believe in. And and some of us who are entrepreneurs, like really attest to that. So tell me a little bit of like fun interviews or like something you said, wow, like how did I score that? Yeah, yeah. I remember it just started. I remember the very first one I did was like two hours long. And I went through like the list of questions like a shotgun. It was like just one question after another, after another, after another. And then once I finished the two hour interview, I was like, wait, a second, I have to transcribe all of this. And then once the transcription took me four hours, I was like, well, this is never happening again. So that was the first one. And it was really funny because I learned immediately. I said, if this is going to be anything and I'm going to do more interviews, like, I have to find a way to not do four or two hour interviews. So, you know, got into a rhythm, started to do, you know, 30 minute interviews with some really good people. And, and what happened was all I did is I asked the people I interviewed, I was like, who are a couple other people that you think I should talk to? And they introduced me to people. And it's just kind of like a web started from there. And you know, I remember I I had I did an in-person interview with the, at the time who was the general counsel of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I was like, oh, like, you know, that's pretty yeah. good. You know, I feel pretty good about that one. I'm just a sophomore in college. Like, yeah. that's good. And, uh, you know, then I did the person who was running marketing at Adidas, and it kind of just kept going and going and going. It started really small, and I think it's really a manifestation, though, of what happens is that I just kept doing it, and the first person – was this guy by the name, I still remember, Ravi Shaw, who was a, a social media intern at a upstart a sports publication at the time and gave me his whole time and all of the time and allowed me to tell a story. And I started with him and then just continued to move up and down the ladder and spoke to various people. And, you know, you never forget those things and the people who gave you your time. But it, it really comes down to just for us, it's as, you know, when we started out the business, it's really about consistency and it's, I think, been that way for the past eight years when you're a content business, as we were talking about a little bit before we started, you have to be consistent, right? Every single day, you're realistic. I was talking to someone today about this. You're in the business of information trading. Right. You have information and you're providing it to an audience and that audience expects information on a daily basis. It's not just like a, you know, a product, like a, a you know, a car wash or something like that, where it's just there and people can show up when they want to use it. Right. And it's totally different. And so that has been kind of, I think what we've been able to do successfully over the past eight years. And then really realistically the last four years, once we were funded business is just consistency and putting out content every single day across all of our various platforms, meeting our audience where they are, and then allowing that to kind of drive the flywheel of the business. Who's your most favorite guest, like, or the most famous oh, one? That's so tough. I, I've had so many. I really liked, I sat down with Erica Nardini, who's a CEO of Barstool Sports. So that was a really good one. Uh, I spoke with Rich, who is the uh, Antonello, who's the CEO of Complex, which was a, a really good one. So you know, I mean, it's, it's been some really great execs in the space. And I can't, I don't know if I can put my name on one that's just like really stood out because all of them have been good. And, and at the end of the day, like I was just at the time really thankful that they would give me the time and the, right. and the conversation and everything like that, which was, which was fun. So yeah, I mean, those are a couple of the ones that stood yeah. out for sure. So Adam, uh, tell our audience a little bit about fundraising process in your, in your business. Yeah. Like, how did you find your first investor? And like, how do you think of like actually, you know, funding a company in this space, which is, as all of us know, extremely competitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so funny. And this is not a lie by any stretch of the imagination. It sounds crazy. I met our first investor on Twitter of all places. Uh, so backstory with that is we had, uh, we had posted something from this company uh, cycle. It was a piece of content that we reposted on our platform, went a bit viral, not too much long after that, the guy who ran 
Laundry Service and Cycle, uh, by a man by the name of Jason Stein, he was on the Digiday podcast of of all things. And I listened to the podcast and then I tweeted about the podcast. I said, oh, this is, you know, a really good listen, blah, blah, blah. Cool to see how, you know, he spent a lot of time building the business. And I was following him. He wasn't following me. He then followed me. And so I sent him what we had what we had posted from the company that that he owned. And I said, hey, like, you know, just so you know, if you guys have anything like this, let us know. Would love to you know, continue to amplify it for you guys. And we started talking over DM and, and that was, uh, you know, where it started. And I think what about a month and a half, two months later, I'm never an emotional tweeter. Like I'm not like, you know, I'm tweeting normally about business stuff. I don't, I don't like really share like many thoughts. And I think at the time my girlfriend had just broken up with me or something like that. I'd just gone through a life moment and I just tweeted, it's amazing what can happen in a year. And he DM'd it to me. Uh, he saw it, DM'd it to me. He said, let me know how I can help. And so him and I got on a call, basically harassed his assistant to, to get on the call. We talked about it. Uh, and not too many, uh, about a month and a half later, I met him in New York in person. And he told me, you know, he had already sold his business and he was at the end of his earnout and was looking for something next. And he was like, I think this could be it. We should find a way to work together. So we started talking back and forth. And that was probably about July of 2018. So we started talking back and forth and, uh, you know, put together, I I mean, it's 23 at this time. I had no idea what I was really doing from a fundraising standpoint. I put together a pretty rough pitch deck. I wish I still had it. I've probably somewhere. And I was like, I think, I think this is what it could do. And this is what we could, we could do with it. And, you know, they, you know, went back and forth and they've been true partners in the business ever since. And so, they invested in it, took a swing on me. And, you know, subsequently we found, uh, you know, some really great partners over the course of the past 40 years to, to fund the business as we've continued to grow. And I think the biggest thing, and this was something that Jason always told me, and Jason's, you know, uh, the man I just referenced, who's our, our now uh, chairman of our board, but he always said, like, if you have a great product, everything else will kind of figure itself out. And so we focus so much on product and brands and, you know, what we've been able to do from a content standpoint. And luckily, because of that, we have been able to attract people like Crane who came in in the most recent round from a strategic standpoint. And they're like, you know, you have a a market leading brand in in a way and we own market leading brands and we want to get a bit younger and find a a way from a newsletter standpoint and some of the other areas from a social standpoint, how to leverage those uh, elements. And we think you guys can help us with that. And so, you know, it's definitely been a bit untraditional in a way. Like it's not Shark Tank fundraising. And I think you and I both know this. Like it's that's that's definitely one way to go about it, but it's obviously not usually the way to go about it. And it really comes down to again consistency and having the conversations that you start I started having conversations with Crane, I believe, in 2018. I had just met Casey on LinkedIn and sent him a note and said, Hey, we should talk and stay connected. And and I think it was 2018, maybe 2019. And so we started to stay in touch and you know, I, I would just follow up with him on a quarterly basis. And I said, Hey, look, like, you know, we're doing this if there's any interest from your side. And so again, I always like to mention uh, this, this kind of euphemism, I guess, with our, with our sales team where soft touch points lead to hard touch points. And it's just like soft check-ins, right? It's like for you, it's like, Hey, how's it going? What's going on? Saw this in the news. Really cool. No ask, but just staying top of mind. And then all of a sudden when there's an opportunity to work together. And so that's really realistically how, our fundraising process has gone. Obviously, we've talked to, you know, traditional people and traditional capital providers and private equity offices and venture capitalists and family offices and everything like that. Uh, But it's really usually been by people who know the brand really well, who read it, who understand it, and who want to be a part of it. And I think that's what you have to really find, specifically early on, is you have to find people who really want to be a part of it and be through the trials and tribulations as you're going through like the early stages. You know, your early stage investors were there from you day one, right? And they're working on the 
the business with yeah. you and everything like that. And I think that's the one thing you have to realize is that as a business continues to mature, the investors will will change a little bit and they're, they're um, kind of how they interact with the business will change. But like those early investors, you really have to find people. And, and we did it in a way where, again, it was a true partnership with Jason and SC. And we may have gotten, you know, a lower valuation, but we got a partner who's been with us since the very beginning right. and has helped us the long way. And I think that's one thing, like, especially for like first time founders or people who are working on launching a new business or thinking about that. It's like, don't go out with a crazy valuation and don't try and, you know, you're not Steve Jobs today. I mean, maybe you are, but like, if you are, hopefully you are getting the value, but like most people aren't right. right. And it's going to take time. And most businesses from the very beginning, you don't want to raise at a much a mass valuation because then you put yourself in a position where you have to live up to that. Right. And now all of a sudden from day one, you have, you don't have enough you know, opportunity to really figure things out. I mean, I always tell people that the first four years of the business, we had no money. It was just me figuring it out. But that allowed us to, one, we did all these informational interviews with people, and that was really just market research. And then we were able to figure out what people wanted. And because we didn't have that money, we had to get really creative, right, right around how we, like, you know, had, quote, unquote, contributors and this to start the business. And all of that we learned in those first four years without the money is, I think, why we've been, you know, successful, you know, knock on wood, up to this point because we figured out everything else without the money first. And then we got the money to supercharge it, where instead of you're getting the money and then trying to figure it all out, and we're obviously still figuring it out. We're also figuring it out. But that's kind of the, the backstory from a funding standpoint. Obviously, you know, it's amazing if you have a hobby that you can turn into a, yeah. into a business, right? And I think you spoke a lot, which uh, our listeners to take away, which is, hey, be scrappy, try to find product market fit. In the early days, if you can do research and understand uh, what the audience really wants or what is the product that is really going to resonate in the market, you're going to be in great spot to then kind of take the fundraising as a springboard into the next level of growth. So, you know, maybe you can share with us, like, you know, because it started as a hobby, were you more passionate about it or did that help you like really be like, hey, I want to now convert this into a real business. And was that, you know, because you had put so much sweat and blood into it. Yeah. Uh, was that easier, not easy? Like, how did you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, I w the the running joke for me is that uh, it was never supposed to be, a like, it was literally supposed to get me a job. That was what it was supposed to happen early on. And then I, I joke and I say, well, it didn't get me a job. It became a job. And it's, it's definitely difficult. Like, I don't think we should sugarcoat that. When you're trying to change your passion into a business, like, we, I, I did not set it up at all to be a business, right? We didn't have any LLCs put together, any tax stuff. Like, you know, it was like all of that came later. Right. And it's still trying to buy the plane or trying to fly the plane while you're building it as it all is with most startups. But for us, it was really that early on because I was in school. We didn't have any funding. It was really just something that we were doing on the side. But it was – we got enough early – indicators from the audience and from the people who are reacting to the brand were like, this can be something if we really put our effort into it. And I think that's what at the time when I went all in on the business. And at the time when I was going quote unquote all in, it's funny because most people who knew me online didn't know at the time that I was working two other jobs behind the scenes. And I think again, like those are the things that you have to do is like, right. if you really want to do something, you're going to have to make choices. And for me, it was I'm going to go serve at night and on weekends in a restaurant and I'm going to work as a TA at the University of Miami and find a way to make sure that my bills are paid and then I can focus on this. And so, yeah, I think 
the fact that it was a passion helped a ton early yeah. on because I, it still is a passion to this day. Like I love it. And there's nothing more that I love than our content and what we're doing on a daily basis and the brand and what it stands for and who we've impacted through our awards and our events and everything like that. And I think that's been like really amazing. And it just, there's just new things you have to learn right. all the time, right? Like this is the only full-time job I have ever had, right? I'm 27 years old. I don't know any realistically about corporate America outside of the corporate America that we live in in our right. startup, right? And so that's that's a, a huge learning curve, right? Because, you know, you don't – meeting structures and this and, like, you never really had any of that, which is cool and fine. We'll learn on our way. But, like, you know, that was a fun thing. I, I interned in two separate places and that was pretty much it. And then we were right into this at 23 and obviously now I'm 27, so things have changed a lot yeah. and you learn a lot. But, yeah, I think that first kind of foray from passion to business is – a definite difficult delta right. to kind of uh, step over. But if you do it in the in the right way, whereas like luckily for us, like I kind of hedged a little bit because I was working on other things part-time. Right. I didn't really impact myself financially early on in the sense that like it was all or nothing with this business. And so he was able to continue to kind of grow it a bit slowly and slowly and slowly. Uh, and we found success with it. And now obviously it's a, a totally different beast. Adam, such a inspirational story personally for me when, you, when I hear such things from, from founders, because, you know, startups are really hard. Super and hard. I think, uh, you know, just to get some insight into what happens uh, and all of us make those trade-offs, right? How do you pay your bills? How do you kind of hedge your bets? And uh, but yet be passionate about what you what you believe in. Uh, you obviously have had a tremendous amount of growth. So maybe briefly tell us, uh, you know, what are the one or two catalysts that really caused that growth? Yeah. You know, you went to obviously our 35 people. That's uh, that's incredible to see. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's so funny. I was talking about this with someone earlier and essentially COVID was horrible from a, a revenue standpoint. I remember there was three months of the of the, the first quarter, probably the second quarter. We First quarter, we're like, oh, we're crushing it. We're feeling good. coming. I mean, our first full-time year as a startup was 2019. And so we were just figuring everything out with money. You're like, okay, what do I do? How do I do this? What am I reporting to our now investors who own 51% of the business, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was a whole interesting thing. And we go through 2019. We're like, okay, we're, we're feeling pretty good about this. Let's, let's go into 2020. And you know, less than a quarter in realistically early part of March COVID hit. And I remember calling Russ my number two. And I was basically like, man, like, to be honest with you, if anything, you know, puts this business under, it's a global pandemic that none of us could have predicted, then, you know, I don't know what else, what else we could do. And, you know, luckily at the time we were super resilient and that was a, a big catalyst for the growth of our newsletter business. And that was like huge, right? So at the time, you know, we cover everything off the field, right? That's kind of our calling card is essentially we're covering the influence of sports on business and culture, which is very different than what's happening on the field and what LeBron's doing on the field or on the court. We're covering what LeBron's doing off the field. And like he just invested in this company, Canyon Bicycles, uh, this past week. And so mm -hmm. that's what we're covering and well, when there was no sports during COVID, that's what everyone was looking for from a, a content standpoint. And so we saw a huge growth in the newsletter audience at that point over the back half of 2020, which is a huge catalyst for like some of the revenue success in, in 2021. And so that was one big area. Uh, we had a ton of success on social. We've had a lot of success on the social platforms. We're the number one sports publisher on LinkedIn, which is really mm -hmm. interesting. Out of all of the, the media companies, realistically, that we know of in the world, we're the number one sports in, in that category from an engagement standpoint. And it was because we kind of bet on the platform early on and we're just posting regularly, mm -hmm. regularly, regularly, regularly. And now we have like, I think almost 200,000 followers on that platform and we're going 
you know, we're doing higher engagement numbers on LinkedIn than we are on some platforms like Twitter. Uh, and it's by far our fastest growing channel. And it's good to see because it's a really awesome top of funnel opportunity for us. So that's another element to where, you know, I would say like everyone talks about Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok, TikTok yeah. Snapchat, like all these different platforms. I would say don't sell, don't take LinkedIn like, you know, softly. You know, I think if, if the people who are investing in content on LinkedIn are seeing a huge opportunity right now, and I think it's just because people are on that platform and they're on that platform for different reasons and looking for different content. I think that's what it has been able to resonate for us. So yeah, I think COVID was a big catalyst and, you know, LinkedIn and, and like our, you know, focus on the social platforms have been a, a big catalyst for the business too. That's great to hear. So Adam, speaking about social media, can you tell our audience, how do they grow their, you know, followers, yeah. engagement on, on social media? What are some of your tips? Yeah, I think I think it's consistency. I think that's the biggest thing. Like I, I used to run our social media platform. So that's the funny thing too, is like you started from the very beginning, you're doing everything, right? So I think it's consistency, right? We were waking up, we were posting every day, multiple times a day. We were engaging. I think that's the other thing too, is engaging with the people who you're following. We're doing a little bit less of that now as a, as a business, just because you know, we've grown to be a true news enterprise organization. So like it, you, you can't really blur the lines as much. Like, I remember I was looking through cause our eight year anniversary was, um, was last week. And I was, I was looking through and we were gift away like pancakes on pancake day to our followers. Like it was wild. Like we would do some crazy stuff, you know, we'd have, you know, we would get in, in Twitter chats and like all of these various things. And we were just doing everything to not like get noticed, but for people to no. see what we were doing and follow, because again, like, it's not like we had like any uh, infrastructure behind us of some of these bigger media companies. So I think that's been a big thing. Find emerging platform forms in your niche mm -hmm. on those emerging platforms. So, uh, if you know, TikTok is your thing, what is it that you can do on TikTok that someone else isn't doing. Again, I think one of the reasons why our content has resonated so well is that it's a specific category of kind of business of sports. And yeah. it's like, it, it really isn't something that mainstream media is covering. And it's not something that, you know, mainstream sports media or mainstream business media is covering. And it's kind of where, you know, a combination of both of those. Back, and we've, we've found that niche. And I don't think niche is small. Like niches can be big, but it's just this focus area, right? Like alternative there are investing. Riches and niches. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like at some point, you know, crypto quote unquote was a niche and yeah. we've seen what it's done in terms of blowing up. So I think overall that's been a big thing and, and you can focus on that specifically. And, you know, I think don't be afraid to experiment. We were doing a ton of experimentation. Right. We were doing a bunch of things and you know, it just comes down to posting and posting and seeing what works and, you know, listening to the platforms, right? If Instagram, for example, is going all in on reels, well, you probably should be posting more reels, right? Like they're telling you exactly how to grow audience. Uh, and, they, and they will do that because they want people to use the platform right. like they are optimizing it for. But also, it's also just don't get fall in love with too much with one platform, right? Have have a strategy for all of the different platforms. Like our Twitter strategy is very different than our LinkedIn strategy, which is different than our Instagram strategy, which is different than our TikTok strategy and things like that because all those platforms, people consume content much differently. They discover content much differently. And I think that's been a big focus and one that I would, that I would recommend is that, yeah, it's great to be on one platform, but you have to know that at some point, like that platform could literally yeah, yeah, exactly. cut it and you're kind of renting your audience. 
And then from there, you know, how do you take what you're doing? And I think the one big thing from a content standpoint too, and, and we struggle with this and, and we're working on it for sure, is that people need to find a way to optimize a lot of their content. So how does one content, say this podcast we're doing, now turn into 10 pieces of content, the audio content, the YouTube content, the social clips on what you guys are doing. So like, that's an example of like, I think a lot of people just are like, I'm going to put out one, I'm just going to put out a piece of content. And I remember early on for us, like we would do I mean, just very, very rough infographics for all the interviews we were doing. And now I had infographics. And and again, I just think there's a lot of content right. in one piece of content. And I think most people just make the one content, put it out, and they don't think about re, you know repurposing it, right. uh, which I think is honestly a miss. And the best media companies now are finding ways to repurpose all of the content that they're producing. Yeah. Listen, great tips, Adam. I mean, Consistency, ensuring that you're managing all the different platforms because they can change with people's strengths and preferences, uh, multi-use of the same content, uh, and really understanding your audience and what they want and how you're consuming. The, the niche part of it is so important because Yield Street as an alternative investment platform is also very specific with what we offer. And we need to, like, really, there's nobody talking about taking alternatives mainstream the way we are. And so I can totally, you know, relate to that in, in some ways. And there um, has to be someone who does take correct. it, right? Like, and then all of a sudden it's going to be mainstream and it's like, well, I kind of helps, you know, do that, right? And, and when it's, and when all these things are, when all these things are mainstream, there has to be someone who does that. And, you know, kudos to yeah. you guys for stewarding that for yeah. sure. So uh, let's talk about content a little bit. What, what do you think the content is going to evolve with all the platforms that you run and like tell, tell our audience a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think our big focus from when we're talking about our content strategy is really how do we meet our audience where they are? Uh, one of our big focuses is our newsletter business. And we have this kind of phrase that we've coined where it's like the inbox is the new homepage. And so I'll be on a call and I'll ask you, I said, when was the last time you went to, you know, let's just use ESPN.com yeah. as an example. And you're like, I don't know. And I was like, when was the last time you checked your email? And you're like, well, I'm in this meeting, right? Or something like that. And it's like, look, no offense. I understand that. But that's where people are consuming content, where our audience at least is yeah. consuming content. That's what we tell our you know, advertisers and you know how we've been able, I think, to grow a lot is that we are writing and producing content specifically for how our audience is consuming said content on the platforms, right? So on our newsletter, it's built native for the, the inbox, right? We don't want you, it's not just a bunch of links that you have to click yeah, out yeah. and go to a site or something. It's literally built for you to read in your inbox, take away stuff from it, like a newspaper would be almost, and then go from there. And so that's been a big thing. And, you know, I think, again, like, you have to understand how people consume content on Twitter is very different than how they're consuming content on Instagram. You know, Instagram, we do a lot of high quality images with some, you know, graphic overlays and things like that that is super shareable. Mm -hmm. We always talk about, um, you know, oftentimes a lot of what we're doing is – we have original content, of course, but there's a lot of curation. And I think that people don't really realize it. Like curation is very different than aggregation. We kind of joke about this whole idea yeah. of like curation as a service or in a sense that we are curating all of the biggest stories and all of the biggest news for our audience. And that's a service that they want because instead of them having to go to 10 different sites or things like that, our editorial team is doing yeah. that. And so, you know, again, on, on Instagram, it's been focused on how do we leverage that platform on LinkedIn. It's really high quality storytelling. It's, you know, obviously things about careers and just like right. uplifting things really perform well on that platform. Twitter news, like, you know, breaking news, news driving mm -hmm. things, Instagram, high quality images, cool graphics, things that people can share with their friends. TikTok, uh, we have a great 
intern Nadia, who's been focused on that uh, recently, and she's been, you know, a personality does really well on TikTok. Right. Seeing people's face does really well on TikTok. So she's been front facing there, which is good. And, you know, we're just working on our podcast strategy now and potentially more long form video. But I, again, I think it's just like there's so much free in knowledge out there now. Yeah that you can learn how to do all of this stuff without having to, to get a degree. And if you get a degree, you can just supplement it. But you know, there's so many things about how to grow a podcast, how to launch a podcast, how to clip videos on podcast. There's technology now. I think like that's the nice thing about, and kind of the, the crazy thing about being a, a content business is that one, everyone can produce content now because we all have our iPhones in our hands and it's much easier now given all the tools to create content, right? You know, like you can create a podcast and there's something that is video recording and audio recording. It makes it easy to clip. And next thing you know, you have a YouTube show, you have a podcast out on your channels and you have clips for all your social platforms right. and you're sharing them across all of them. So it's just something where it's like, you're really seeing a rise of that from an individuality standpoint. But I do think uh, specifically from a platform standpoint, that brand does matter. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a sort of gravitas, right, with a brand like Yield Street or these other brands where, you know, even Forbes, right? Like Forbes for a, a long time has been a brand that's kind of been caught up in ownership yeah. from a media standpoint. I just saw today that they're on the sale uh, selling block again and they're looking for a new owner. But everyone wants to be recognized by Forbes because it's like, Forbes and yep. the Forbes brand matters, right? You guys have Forbes magazines in right. the, in, in the, in the office because it matters still. And so I think that's one thing too, that when, if you're, you have to decide, are you going to build something specifically around like a personal brand yeah. uh, like yourself, or are you going to build a brand that can be, you know, forward facing? And, and I think the, benefit that we did was we took a brand and we made it forward facing and the front office sports brand now is extremely strong. And obviously we have amazing writers and content creators and people who are working underneath that brand. But what's beautiful about it is that the front office sports brand matters. And so when our team reaches out, it's like, oh, it's from front office sports. Like, okay, yeah, like we want to be covered. We want to be in this. We want to be featured. We want to be this. And there becomes a lot of authority around that, that sometimes it's difficult to create, you know, from an individual right. standpoint. Yep. Adam, you made some of uh, some of the really profound points uh, when you speak about content and where content is going. So curating specific content and meeting people where they are. But also, I think I really like what you said about different channels and what, you know, how people consume content and what their expectations are. I don't think lots of social media personalities or even marketing teams realize that. So what you said about LinkedIn uplifting content versus TikTok where, you know, face and video does really well. And, and like those nuances, if marketing teams would understand, they would be very effective in their marketing. So thank you for sharing that. With yeah, of course. Now. I mean, uh, I think it's it's just for us, it's just a test and learn. Like we've just learned all of these things, which has been something great because we just have tested correct. all of these platforms. And then you start to see, okay, well, this performs well. Let's double right. down on that, right. right? I think I remember we really knew we hit it big in, in, on LinkedIn when we posted something about uh, it was a guy who started as a, a line cook and now is an ESPN anchor, right? And he was talking about it. And we just posted the side-by-side -side photos of it. And I don't know what the last thing I remember, but on LinkedIn, I think that that post alone had like 200,000 likes or engagements. It was like absolutely crazy. Like I've just never seen anything like that. And that is the other thing too, is understanding the shelf life. I didn't really talk about, but the shelf life of the content on your platforms. Right. I think Twitter, the shelf life is like 15 minutes, if that, depending on what you're posting. Yeah. Uh, on LinkedIn, like the shelf life, which is kind of crazy. And I think that's why the platform is having a lot of success right now for media companies. Shelf life is like multiple days, if not weeks, if not months, right. because like you like something and then it shows up in your feed right. for your followers. And then maybe someone that they like, then it shows up in their feed and you may like it a month after we post it, but it keeps going. And I think like, that's the other thing too, is that on LinkedIn, we're not posting 
at a volume that we may on Twitter because the shelf life of the content on LinkedIn right. is so much longer. Like I, I could go on our LinkedIn right yeah. now and probably see that, you know, we posted something two weeks ago that someone just engaged with 10 minutes ago. 10 minutes ago, yeah. Yeah, that's so. That's another very good tip. So, uh, so talk, we spoke about, uh, you know, niches, right? And like how you guys found your niche. Can you take this concept and take the front office concept and apply it to other industries? What have you thought about that? Yeah, we've thought about it. <laughs> so this is the funny thing I always tell people. Like the name front office sports is so indicative with what we cover yeah. that it's very, very like I couldn't do front office real estate. You know, like if I was to do it all over again, like I would probably choose like a one word. And I think Axios has done a really good yeah. job about this from a media. Correct. It's Axios, yeah. but they can be Axios media trends, Axios pro rata, Axios, yeah. you name it. Right. They have it. Yeah. And front office sports is just so, so difficult to create other things. I think the concept and the idea of it, 100%, you can take into other right. categories where you're taking a different approach to like, you know, business reporting, or uh, I would say, but for us specifically, it's like, we believe that the opportunity is really big in this category. Right. And, and just because sports is really at the nexus of everything, whether it's investing, whether yeah. it's technology, whether it's marketing, whether it's media, I always tell people, I said, ad agencies and advertisers' biggest moments usually throughout the year are the Super Bowl, right? I was like, yeah. but it's sports, but that's advertising is an industry and we can cover that. And so we think there's just so much still for us to go, get after from a content standpoint, but we have explored it. It's just when you have front office Fine. sports as a name, it's, it's a great brand for what we've built terribly shitty brand for if we were trying to extend it into other, uh, but other verticals. I, yeah, but I think you've been hard on yourself because I think you're part of the creator economy, yeah. right? And so if you blend the creator economy with uh, sports as at, at the core of it, then you could create multiple different, you know, kind of pathways, right? So it could be within sports, venture investing versus investing as an ecosystem versus like building your brand for totally. the creators is completely different versus like, hey, how do you launch actually products using your brand? And and so there are different ways that you could, you know, actually cover those news because, you know, there is like different things that creators are today doing that they never did even five, 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, you know? totally. I mean, inside of sports, 100%, I think we can do, right. you know, we can go into multiple different categories, sports betting, real estate, yeah. technology, and we're covering that all from a high level standpoint. But yeah, outside of sports, it's just been, it's been like, hey, right. let's just focus solely on where we can do here. But inside, 100%, college athletics, name, image, and likeness, all of these deals yeah, that yeah. these players are signing. There's so much news. I mean, the biggest story uh, of today, realistically, to start the day was the fact that Tiger Woods was offered seven hundred million, million to eight hundred million dollars uh, to join Live Golf, and you know that's that's a story that's not about what Tiger Woods is doing on the course, right? right? And so that's you know again what we've been seeing from uh, just a trend. Standpoint. If he was playing well, imagine what what they would offer. Oh him. my! Uh, <laughs> I mean, billions, probably. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's just uh, it's crazy. There is no one, in my opinion, right. who moves the needle for a sport more than Tiger Woods, yeah. even like love Michael Jordan, love LeBron. But like when Tiger is on like sport uh, golf at its is at its best, right. right? When he won the masters, I think it was like two or three, I, everyone was talking about it, everyone. And again, there's no offense to any of the current winners or anything like that, but it's just not the same right. without, without Tiger being good. And, you know, hopefully his, his son is going to be good. And I think Tiger will win a few more. Like I definitely think hopefully, he has it yeah. in him, but yeah, I, it's I, funny you speak about Tiger because I was at the Masters this year. Oh, great! And how was the know, pimento sandwiches? The was, food was were good. Great, man, the food was amazing. Good. Just the whole experience. No pictures, though, right? You can't take any cameras or phones um, in there. It was like no phones. No comment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing, Adam, is that you speaking going back to Tiger, right? Like you would be on one side of the court, and you would see this swamp of people moving, 
and you know that's where is tiger yeah. right like literally you would see like this 200 people all moving in unison and you would be like maybe 200 yards away or 300 yards away on the other side and you would know that oh that's where tiger is on the prowl yeah. as they say yeah. you know so yeah i mean i remember seeing we posted about the pictures just from his practice round right. I mean, it was like a sold out 15, 20, 30, 40 people deep just to watch him play a practice round. It's not like he was playing on Sunday in the lead at Augusta. Uh, So, yeah, it's just it really is amazing that, you know, Tiger's impact um, specifically on that on that game has been so profound. So, uh, Adam, uh, switching gears a little bit, talk about my other passions. That's the new podcast you launched. How did that come about? Yeah, so Ernest, our editor-in-chief, kind of came up with a concept, but it's really about the idea of exploring kind of the multifacetedness of, of executives, athletes, um, you know, entrepreneurs, business leaders, et cetera, because I think obviously we're all known for our core thing, right? For, so for me, it's the you know, front office sports and the media brand and all of that stuff, but there's oftentimes a lot of other things that either we're good at, we're interested in, things like that. And so that's been the whole idea with the podcast is really can we showcase kind of the intersectionality or the duality of, of people outside of just what they're focused on in their core thing. So obviously we're going to talk about, like we just spoke to Peter Moore, who is former CEO of, uh, or not, uh, former, I think he led EA Sports. He was the former head of Xbox, I believe, at Microsoft, and then was a CEO at Liverpool. And he was talking about a broad range of everything, including like soccer in the US and like the console wars. And so I think the idea is really about giving our editor-in-chief, Ernest, the space to have the opportunity to take the conversation in multiple ways than just being like, we're going to only talk about business and that's it and that's it and that's it, which again, like obviously is a great concept and conversation and topic, but there's some more to it. And I think, you know, that was, that was, that was the, the genesis of it. And we, the first, uh, first interview was with Frankie uh, Munoz, who most people know Malcolm in the middle, the dude is obsessed with racing, wants to be a NASCAR driver and like, is just totally focused on how we can become a NASCAR driver. And that's like a really interesting story, yeah, right? Yeah. So I think that's been the, the kind of the focus and you're three episodes in, but uh, so far so good. That's great. So, uh, you know, we spoke a lot about business and building a startup. Tell our audience, how do you relax? What do you do for fun? Uh, <laughs> not enough, if yeah. you ask my girlfriend or family members. But yeah, I mean, I love cooking. I think it's like, I, I just, I like creating. And I think it's always been something, whether it's I'm creating with the site or the business or creating with food. I think that's been, and I spend a lot of times in restaurants. Uh, so my ultimate goal is eventually once we're, we're, we're in a good spot from a business standpoint, we're in a good spot now, but just like whether we've exited or something like that, like I'd love to go to culinary school and just learn how to actually like formally cook, uh, which would be really cool. Uh, I love, I've, I've always wanted to fly planes. Uh, I've always want, I love traveling uh, when I can and just love flying, which yeah. is really interesting. So yeah, for me, and I think this is the one thing that I think some people kind of get confused is, yeah, I work 10, 12, 13, 14 hours a day, but I love it, you yeah. know, and there's nothing I would rather be working on, right? Like, I can't imagine if I even worked an eight hour day where I was like, oh my goodness, like I was just a, you know, mid-tier employee somewhere yeah. for something that I didn't like. Like, yeah, it would be horrible and I would probably clock in at nine and clock out at five, but like, I truly genuinely love that. And that's what I've tried to get across to, you know, the people who've been in my circle, whether it's my girlfriend or my family members, is like, yeah, I may work a lot, but like, it doesn't bother me, you know, and I think, and I think that's, a, that's just like, again, a trade-off that if it's really something you enjoy, I don't think there is, you know, I find most of it oftentimes fun and relaxing and like, I don't really need to, oh my gosh, like I need to go home and put my feet up and have two beers right. or something like that after work because it's like, okay, what's next, right? Yeah. And so I think that's been the big thing for me is just like love cooking, love doing these other things, um, but 
I love the business. Yeah. And, you know, again, there's so much upside that we still haven't been able to realize just yet. And for me, like, that's what's fun and, and what gets you up at night. Yeah. Listen, that's, again, a very good tip, Adam, because I think if you find your passion, whether you're an entrepreneur or an employee, then work is not work any longer. Totally. Right? And you're, like, totally engrossed into it. So uh, wrapping up here, Adam, you know, maybe do some fun, like, rapid-fire questions yeah. to kind of, you know, uh, wrap it up here. So yesterday's big story was... Uh, the the net worth of all the teams that came out with Cowboys like yeah. topping $7 billion, right? So if there was one sports team you wanted to invest in, who would it be? Oh, this is going to be so off the beaten path. I'm from Arizona. I'm a huge hockey fan. There's not many of us. Love the Arizona Coyotes. So I know their CEO. I've joked with him. I said, when you guys are ready to sell a piece of the business, just let me know. I want to be an invest. I was a season ticket holder for a yeah. long time. I'm born and raised in Arizona. And I just have this like wild, not conspiracy theory in my opinion, but wild theory yeah. that, you know, 2024, they're going to sign Austin Matthews, who like currently plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs and yeah. is like the top, one of the top players in the NHL. He's from Arizona. They have a new arena that they're going to build. They're going to win the Stanley Cup. And like the prophecy yeah. is going to kind of get fulfilled. So that's that's the one team that I've always said, you know, it's your hometown team, right. like the team that I loved, I grew up with, had so many good memories, going to games with my dad, skipping out on homework, trying yeah. to do homework <laughs> in the car, you know, all those things that's as a close. kid. Uh, but to watch the Coyotes. So that's, yeah, I mean, obviously you'd love to own like, you know, the Red Sox or yeah. the Yankees or things like that. Uh, you know, hopefully you know, I have a chance to own at least potentially part of one one day. But uh, the Coyotes, I think, would be the, the fun one. That's awesome. If you get a piece of that, let us know at Yale Street so we could make it available to people in Arizona. Yeah, there first, we go. And exactly. then the rest of the country. There we right? go. Yeah, like, we can. You're trying to democratize access and, you know. Uh, seriously speaking, we have spoken to a number of sports franchises, but the rules are so you know yeah. strict in terms of like look-throughs and uh, and the idea really is that imagine if you could let people in that state and the fans of that team own a piece of that. Yeah, and, it's and almost like today, the yeah, exactly. like the um, the Green Bay Packers, but Correct. the ownership is fake, fake. right? Like no, yeah, exactly. you just get a certificate and you say you're yeah, an yeah. owner, but I mean it's real money that the Packers Correct. like raise, which Correct. is yeah, yeah, which yeah. is pretty crazy. Uh, I think you know there's a lot of opportunities too with some of the upstart leagues that yeah. could be really interesting for for you guys who don't have as much of a stranglehold on kind of like yeah. old school approaches to things like. I think there's like a lot of things like Premier Lacrosse League, for example, could be a really cool yes. one um, where you I'm, actually have common investors with Premier Lacrosse uh, oh. League, uh, Green Ventures that okay. do a lot of media partnerships. Oh, cool. cool. So, yeah, that's great. That's great. So uh, maybe a couple other ones. Favorite athlete? I don't know. There's a lot that I would that I would kind of key in on. Uh, I played baseball as a kid, so really liked Mike Trout, uh, you know, I, more of a more recent one, but I just love how yeah. he, you know, he just plays the game well. He plays the game hard, does his business, doesn't, you know, overly showboat or anything like that. So uh, that's been that's been a good one that I've I've really enjoyed. Love, you know, Peak Tiger. I think we talked about this yeah. and watching him play and Kobe and just some of these real competitors, right? Like, I think that's the big thing is just like watching these competitors play and just seeing how they go about their day to day. Tom Brady, right? Like you know, it's just the best of the best, and they are just so focused on all of the things that they do. And so I think that's, you know, there's a bunch yeah, of them. Yeah, lot, lot to learn from them. Lots to learn. Last question, favorite sports moment? Woo, there's some good ones there too. I think the most, the one that definitely sticks out, I went to Miami. So 
I was, it was so funny from 2013 when I was in school to 2017, the team was not great on the field. So I went to Miami expecting it to be like the U part three. I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be great. We beat Florida my first game. I was sweating. I literally stopped sweating because I was in Miami in August. I couldn't sweat anymore. Uh, and so they weren't great, unfortunately, but the year after I graduated, of course, yeah. uh, they were, you know, one of the top teams in the country, got to number two in the country. Uh, and before they got to number two in the country, there was two weeks. They played Virginia Tech on a Thursday night. And then the next week they played Notre Dame at home. And those two games, the stadium was absolutely packed for both of them. College game day was there that Saturday. Uh, and we beat the brakes off Notre Dame. Like it was, uh, it was like 34, 14 or something like that. And the stadium was legitimately shaking. Right. And it was so cool and so much fun. And we thought we were going to win the national championship only to lose the next week to Pitt and like all this crazy stuff. But that was, that was definitely probably my highlight as of right now. Adam, it was such a pleasure. You were amazing. Thank you for joining us. To our listeners, thanks a lot. It was a great episode. Adam White, the founder of uh, Front Office Sports. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at YieldStreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.